0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. From cakes to croissants to pralines, Louisiana has an affection for confection. This week, we satiate our sweet tooth with the help of some delightful dessert makers we begin by getting a crash course in the art of sugar blowing and sculpting with Sydney Galpern. Then, the cake mix doctor is in the house as Anne Byrne gives us a lesson in cake history, going back to the origins of baking in America. Finally, we travel to Emma's famous pralines in Slidell, where Emma Giron has devoted much of her life to the emblematic Louisiana treat. We've all got a sweet tooth on this week's Louisiana Eats. In downtown New Orleans, a restored 19th century brick building is home to the New Orleans glassworks and printmaking studio. The space is over 25,000 square feet, housing enormous glassblowing furnaces that can reach up to 2400 degrees Fahrenheit. When Louisiana Eats arrived at the facility one afternoon, we found Chef Tory McPhail standing yards from the raging inferno. He was busy tending to a much smaller fire, bringing a giant pot of crawfish to a boil.
1: For a beer. Yeah. The slack
0: this was a few years back, before Tory left New Orleans for Montana after nearly two decades as head chef at Commander's Palace. That day, He and his team were preparing a crawfish boil lunch for a group of prominent chefs from Commanders, Brennans, and Gambinos to name just a few. They were gathered for a day-long crash course in sugar blowing, the art of creating sugar sculptures with tools like those used in glass blowing. Corey, what made you want to come and participate in this sugar blowing event today? So
1: so oddly enough, we're blowing sugar today, but actually the whole thing um, got started because of chocolate. I pulled up like six months ago, and my dear, dear friend Juan Carlos Gonzalez was in the front seat, and they had, we're next door right now to um, Bittersweet Patisserie next door, and so they had an Albert Ooster chocolate thing going on there i was like all right cool i'm going to check out what's what's happening in the world of chocolate tonight so we pulled up and the parking spot that was open was right in front of new orleans glassworks we get out we pop in which we start tasting of so these amazing european chocolates we're having espresso they had glasses of prosecco and so we had like i don't know six of those and we're hanging out we're enjoying ourselves having a good time we walk out and who comes out the front door but miss genie and she says, hey, come here, you know, come, come check this out. So we're walking around the, the, the glass shop and we start talking about chocolate and da da da. She's like, well, hey, look, have you ever thought about blowing sugar? I'm like, man, I always, always wanted to do that, let's go. She says, well, you put together the group of chefs, right? you figure out the time and we're gonna get some people in here and teach you and the whole Commander's Palace restaurant group what's going on with blowing sugar. And so here we are today. We said, hey, look, you know what? We wanted a great lunch. Let's throw everybody a crawfish boil, right? We get to understand what's happened in their world. We get to understand what's happening in ours. I mean, I just think it's fascinating, no matter if it's food, uh, which is what I'm obviously very geeky about and very, very into, but guys that do other types of creative arts, I think is just fascinating. So to be able to walk in here and see these guys using glass as their medium and express their amazing creativity, I think it's damn cool. You know, I, I really do, it's great.
2: All right, thank you guys so much for coming. I'm Cindy Galpern, I'm the instructor here. I specialize in blown sugar and blown ice malt, which is what we are about to do. We are gonna do it's a blown sugar craft, so his body is blown and then his arms are gonna be all hand sculpted.
0: Leading the workshop that day was visiting master sugar sculptor Sydney Galpern. I asked Sydney how, at the age of just twenty one, she was already a world renowned sugar blowing instructor.
2: So I started early. I started when I was 12 years old. I've been doing this for about nine years. And I actually started out with just having a bakery. So I wanted to make cakes. I wanted to make confections. I was also teaching on the side of that as well um, and just doing holding classes and things like that. But both ends of that, the bakery and the teaching, both got very busy. And I kind of had to choose, do I want to stay home and have the bakery full time or do I want to travel full time and hold classes and teach at conventions? And I love teaching. I love making cakes, too, but I love teaching. Uh, That's what I really, really really like to do so that's what I do now full-time for people who
0: have maybe never heard that word before explain what ice melt is
2: Okay, so isomalt is a sugar substitute. So it's gonna work a lot the same way as if you were to just melt down lollipops or Jolly Ranchers. So there's a lot of different things you can do with it. Um, isomalt is very versatile. You can pour it into molds and make any shape, basically, that you can think of. You can stretch it out and make ribbons. You can uh, sculpt it into sculptures. You can then take that pulled isomalt and do blown sugar or blown isomalt. And that is very similar to glass blowing, except it's actually edible. One of my favorite things that I've done is I did a bust of Edgar Allan Poe that I hand sculpted. (laughs) I love him. So that was one of my favorite things that I've done. But, um, you know, really, there's so many different ways that you can use it with blowing, with sculpting. It's a hard candy, except it's a sugar-free substitute. So what that means is it's used instead of real sugar because real sugar is very susceptible to humidity. So at home in Florida and just like here in New Orleans, it is going to be very, very humid all the time. So if you were to use real sugar, it's going to get very sticky and drippy and can actually break down. So what isomalt does is it preserves your piece. It's actually going to be a lot less susceptible to the humidity, and it's just going to stay beautiful for months rather than sugar, which can melt very quickly.
0: What are the similarities between sugar blowing and glass blowing?
2: It's really similar, actually. I was very surprised. Um, I've done a little bit of glass blowing before. The main difference of it is that you can't touch glass. (laughs) It's way too hot, that would not be good. You can touch the ice malt once it's cooled down a little bit, not when it's liquid, because it's about 300 degrees, but you can be a little bit more hands-on with the ice malt than you can with the sugar. But as far as the blowing and the shaping and the way that you can manipulate it and the way that it dries and sets up, it is very, very similar. So I'm pretty happy with this. Um, I don't want to go too big, because the more you stretch this out, the thinner it gets, right? Because you are working with a solid amount of isomalt, so it's not like you're adding more and more to it. So the more that you stretch it out and puff it out, the thinner these walls are gonna get, and the more fragile it's gonna get.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you approach teaching people, because the chefs probably have little to no exposure to this, I suspect.
2: Yeah, definitely, it was awesome, because we have a couple people that have used isomalt a little bit, but we also have some people who have never touched isomalt before. So I just kind of, I like to build up a little bit. So we start a little bit more simple and then we build up onto the advanced techniques. And uh, I try and teach it so that everyone can learn. So a lot of asking questions and back and forth, you know, I don't just want to talk at people. I want them to be engaged in it and really interested because it is so interesting. There's so many things to this. Remember that consistency. It's gotta be thick enough to hold itself up.
0: So what did these professional chefs, all at the top of their fields, learn from the day-long course? We asked them.
3: I'm Angela St. Romain. I work for Gambino's Bakery in Baton Rouge. Angela, why were you interested in coming here today? Well, about 20 years ago, I unsuccessfully tried to do pulled sugar. (laughs) With the humidity here in Louisiana, it was just impossible. And I was working with a classically trained uh, chef from Paris and we you know I was his apprentice and he made this beautiful cake and uh, within an hour with all our humidity uh, it was weeping and so we were both weeping with the cake and when this came up I said you know I really want to try this again because I failed once so I'm not I don't want to give up and so here I am and this is this is wonderful. So what did you learn today? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the isomalt is a lot more forgiving than just going with natural sugars and, and getting it down with with corn syrup, which is the method that we used. So, uh, you know, the new techniques that are coming in the culinary in- industry are just wonderful and, and really make our jobs a lot more uh, fun and, and creative and easy.
4: How you doing? Uh, my name is Eric Pirelli. I'm the pastry chef over at Brennan's.
0: Eric, why did you want to come here today?
4: Um, I came to... Um, basically improve my skills with sugar and uh, to learn some new techniques.
0: What did you learn new today?
4: Um, <clears throat> patience. I learned, I learned uh, patience with uh, the pulling and, and allowing it to cool faster instead of rushing things.
5: I'm uh, Rebecca Brettel, I
6: work at Gambino's bakery and I work at the New Orleans location. I'm a wedding cake decorator and I wanted to try something different and new that I haven't seen here in the city. Never done anything like it before, so this is everything is new. I've learned everything new today. It's fantastic.
1: My name Tori McPhail of Commander's Palace Restaurant. So these guys are teaching us how to make sculptures and seahorses and starfish and all this cool cool stuff. So here, here we are, hanging out, drinking beer, eating crawfish, house-made andouille, wild shrimp, and they're teaching us how to blow sugar. I mean, how blow cool is that? Sugar, that's wild. And it's only Monday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: A visit to New Orleans Glassworks and Printmaking Studio with master sugar sculptor, Sidney Galpern, and some of the best chefs and bakers in Louisiana. Coming up next, we hear from Anne Byrne, also known as the Cake Mix Doctor. She discusses her book, American Cake, which takes readers back to the origins of cake baking in America. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients. Aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor.
4: I'm Ann Byrne. People know me as the cake mix doctor.
0: Here in the U.S.,
4: cakes are
0: much more than sugar, flour, and frosting. They have a sweet, layered history going back to the origins of baking in America. In her book, American Cake, Ann Byrne takes readers on a journey through our country's past to present, exploring styles from New England gingerbread to Hawaiian chantilly. Before we delved into her research, I asked Anne to explain to me how she became known as the cake mix doctor.
4: Well, after I was trained in France and wrote about food for 15, 20 years, uh, I had three children and they were small and I reached for a box of cake mix in my pantry and decided I would doctor it up and make a homemade frosting. I wrote about it in the newspaper and then that sort of gave everybody else license to start doing the same thing. I wrote a book, Cake Mix Doctor, and here I am today. So in your opinion, do you think it's all about the icing? If you use a cake mix, it is all about the icing. I taught a lot of people in this country how to make a homemade frosting because really canned frosting from the supermarket is pretty terrible. In your book, American Cake, one of the things that you discuss is where
0: the word icing comes from. So tell me about icing.
4: Icing is pretty interesting. You know, it all boils down to sugar, puppy, and you know that. I mean, it's sort of like where was sugar available in this country? I'll just backtrack just a second. You know, so much of our history of baking cakes in this country, and this book is all scratch recipes, by the way. It's not cake mix, but it's all scratch. And the history really boils down to was sugar available? Was it near you? Could you afford it? And what did you do with it? So really, the first icings or frostings were really just a little bit of sugar, perhaps beaten with an egg white, simple meringue, thrown back on the cake, or even no egg white at all, the sugar thrown on the cake, put back in that hot oven, and it glossed the top of the cake and it looked like ice. And that's where the word icing came from um, that we use today. And of course, it's gotten much more elaborate than that. I loved the way you
0: defined American cake. You say that American cake is one part technique, one part history of homeland, one part available ingredients, and one part American spirit. Why does that make up American cake?
4: Hmm. Because the people who came to our country brought their recipes from the homeland with them. They had to use ingredients that are available here. In our country, so they had to adapt a few things if they made a jam cake, they used blackberries because they were growing wild across the middle middle of America and the American spirit apart was because they could not rely just on that recipe from the homeland they had to break some rules the ingredients were different. The people who made American cake are a wonderful collage of countries, of backgrounds, and all of that contribution created the cake that we know today. And when times are tough and you don't have the ingredients that you want, you use what you have. And some of the best cakes in our country have come out of that time in history. There was a time in America before baking powder and
0: baking soda, important leavening agents existed. And
4: there was something called emptins that were used. Well, it was just the leftover residue in the yeast that was from beer making or brewing. Uh, so it was what people used as early yeast. Yeast kegs were very popular in Europe. And they had been, and those recipes came with Americans. And when beer was made here, cider was made here, any of that leftover yeasty residue, that was used in baking. The early American bakers were very resourceful. They used everything that they had. And then as our country got away from maybe the time-consuming yeast cakes, that's when potash and pearl ash, which is the ash from burning hardwood trees, that was somehow thrown into a cake or a batter and they saw that it lightened the cake and the bread it was miraculous. How did they think of that? Well, I, mean, I, it, I, I don't know how you think of taking some ash and throwing it into a I don't know if cake. you think of it. It was used in soap making. But what you think about the fire was, the, was not only the heat source, but it was also the cooking source. It was the oven. It was the stove. And burning ash could quite possibly have gotten into the batter of something. And the cook would have noticed that the outcome was a lot lighter and more spongy <laughs> than her original version so potash pearl those were early leaveners which then evolved into baking soda cream of tartar and then baking powder as we know it
0: you go back as far as cakes in early america dating back to 1650 to 1799 what were cakes like back then
4: they were very simple, and they were from England. The re- you know, the recipe sources were mostly British. Uh, but what I thought was really interesting were the, the baking that was done by the Quakers in Pennsylvania and f- the first cheesecakes that were baked in our country. They were not New York-style cheesecakes, as we would see later, made with cream cheese. These were made with fresh curds. And these were dairy farmers. I love that. And then all sorts of variations on pound cakes. The carrot tea cake that's in the book, that is an early pound cake. And then there's a recipe out of South Carolina that I found that I just love, which is called a water cake. And that dates back to 1770. And there was that's all the recipe was called in this old diary called a water cake. And when I looked at the ingredients, it being, you know, sugar and eggs and flour, I realized it was a sponge cake. But because sugar was sold by the block or the cone, you had to snip off a piece of it, dissolve it in hot water at the back of the stove or over the fire. And that's why it was called a water cake, because that hot sugar syrup went into the eggs and then flour was added and made a and made a sponge cake.
0: How and when was the American layer cake born?
4: It was born after 1865 when baking powder was available and we should say really it was after the civil war because people were baking if they were baking again they were looking for quicker ways to bake. You would not be putting a cake in the oven and, and it could not consume so many costly ingredients. So baking powder had been invented in, in uh, England in 1855. It came over to this country. And that's at the end of the 1800s is when most cooks started using baking powder. And it was a miraculous ingredient because the cakes could bake a lot faster. They didn't need as many eggs. It was more economical. And it really changed the texture of cake. It went from sort of that heavy fruitcake pancake to a much lighter crumb. And then so doing with the just think about the evolution of the ovens and layers and how layer pans could fit into new ovens. You could bake more layers. You could make lighter cakes. And the layer cake was born.
0: Well, I was very interested to read in your book how... Broadly, Louisiana figured in to
4: cakes. Oh, you all have such a fabulous food heritage here, and so many countries go into sort of your mix of flavors. And really, in, in New Orleans was so ahead of the curve. <laughs> you know, the rest of the colonies were fighting and bickering and you all were all down here cooking. You might have been fighting and bickering too, but you were cooking wonderful flavors and you've got that heritage. It's no wonder you've got the dobash and you've got the king cakes.
0: I believe the ultimate American celebration cake has to be the American wedding cake. And the birthday cake. So would you talk to us about that tradition? Yeah,
4: well, you know, wedding cakes have changed through the years. They really were originally fruit cakes, and that changed with uh, the wedding of Queen Victoria. And after that, not only the weddings, but also the wedding cake itself became white. But, you know, white cakes were only, you could only make them if you had white sugar and also white flour. So flour was not always bleached. And the bleaching process of flour came about as a way of sanitizing flour, but also as a way to show its purity. Um, So it was really revered, especially in something like a wedding cake. The wedding cake being white was a symbol that you had the money to pay for bleached flour and white sugar. It's so interesting now that we're sort of, we're completely away from that. You know, we're baking with unbleached flour. And I think birthday cakes, I've found in this book that they're very regional. Um, a cake that I'm not, that I didn't grow up with is the Wellesley fudge cake, which is out of Massachusetts. And that is a great chocolate layer cake. I mean, it's fantastic. But that's a birthday cake in New England everyone loves the uh, the mother ann's shaker cake that's in the book with the peach jam between the layers that's a new england birthday cake
0: aside from those celebrations
4: then there's also sunday cakes and funeral cakes very much so and i think maybe more in the south and definitely here in new Orleans. Cakes lend themselves to breaking a fast just, you know, for and related to church, uh, you know, church suppers, church lunches, church raffles. Cakes are part of so many celebrations, civic as well as related to church. Um, And I found that true with the Louisiana syrup cake when I talked to Corinne Cook uh, in Baton Rouge. Also, I think cakes, especially in the South, have always been large. So cakes have been a way to feed a lot of people, a big family, a church supper, a th- the, you know, much more so than a pie. Well, Ann, if I'd known you were coming,
0: I would have baked a cake. <laughs> 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 but I'm so grateful you came anyway. Oh, and I you, hope any time that you come our way, you take the opportunity to sit down with us on Louisiana Eats. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That was Ann Byrne, the cake mix doctor. Her book, American Cake, has just been released in paperback, and her latest title, A New Take on Cake, is due out this fall. Visit annbyrne.com for more delicious details.
7: It's not from a recipe book. You don't have to be a good cook. Or run to the the oven oven and look. With such a simple dish, all you do is wish. So why not bake a sunshine cake?
0: Over the last decade, artisan bakeries have experienced rapid growth across the country. That's true here in Louisiana as well. If you're looking for the platonic ideal in pastries, you can stop by a countless number of small shops and sample their goods. A few years back, Louisiana Eats stopped by Gracious Bakery's headquarters on South Norman Francis Parkway, formerly Jeff Davis Parkway on the border of Mid-City in New Orleans. It's where Gracious makes their delectable croissants, which you can enjoy at any of their three locations. We were there that day to observe just how their croissants are made. But first, we had a quick chat with owner and executive pastry chef, Megan Foreman.
6: We started on our in our location on South Jeff Davis about four years ago in the Woodward Building, and uh, my husband and I started the company and just wanted to make sure that the idea would float and that people would come. It's kind of far away from everything else a lot of people start by saying oh this is in no man's land but um, it really is a crossroads of um, a lot of different neighborhoods a lot of people pass through and um, on their way to something else and so it really has become a destination location with the help of all these wonderful people that that work with us and and do amazing really wonderful things and so we, I guess two years ago now, um, decided to expand and, and create a commissary so that we could do wholesale products and serve more locations as we grew.
0: What made you become a baker in the first place?
6: I wanted to, I was in college and I was trying to understand what could I do that I really loved doing. And uh, liberal, in liberal arts, I was taking... French and um English and I thought well, what kind of job does this translate to and um I saw a, a news segment about a culinary school and it just it just hit me that that would be something that I would love to do um I'm a pretty active person and I love having my hands and things and I like instant results um so all those things added up I thought would be good I had no idea what I was in for but it's been a wonderful surprise and a learning experience like I never would have imagined so you went to culinary school. Which one did you go to? I did. I went to New England Culinary Institute in Vermont, in Montpelier, and uh, did a savory externship. And then I thought, well, let me round myself out and do a pastry one in New York. And so I moved to New York and, um, and did that, and then it just changed everything for me. What I loved so much about it was this never-ending education like there's just so much to learn all the time there's so many new things it's such an exciting creative field tell us a little bit about the life of a
0: pastry chef um long days early hours tell me what a day in the life of megan foreman's like
6: well, the day now is much um, better than used to be. But when we first opened, um, it was it was early morning. The bakers get in at about 4, and that's when they start their day. And um, we have different shifts, the ones who start at 4 and end at 12. Um, but, you know, when you're an owner – You're kind of always on Um, you're always taking care of your baby so um, you know even when you're off you're thinking about it and you're checking in and you're making sure everything's going well but I mean that is the biggest thing is having this group of people that everyone does their job so well that I don't have to worry and I'm really lucky you know with that
0: out of all the products that you make here what is your guilty pleasure what's the thing that you sneak a little bit for yourself and you just can't help it
6: well, we were talking about that the other day, like um, people were talking about what is your spirit animal and I was like, well, my spirit animal in the dessert world is definitely chocolate mousse. It's, it's like that's simple thing, but it's so delicious and it really showcases the quality of the chocolate, you know, that we use. And I could sit, that will be like if it's my last meal kind of thing, like I'll take a bowl of that um, to finish off. But you know, that really is the thing that I would go back to over and over again. Next, Megan led us into the kitchen at Gracious,
0: where the dough was prepped and ready to be laminated. The process that gives croissants those flaky layers.
5: Uh, my name is Summer Beach, and I'm the pastry chef at Gracious Bakery. I am going to laminate some croissant dough. I start with a block of dough that we have sheeted out to the size of a sheet tray. And then I take a block of butter, that is about half the size. And I'm gonna layer it in between. So laminating is just the process of folding dough over butter and creating layers of dough and butter. So I have a sandwich here of dough and butter and the temperature is what's really important when you're dealing with croissant dough. It's really, really cold. Um, You want it to be as cold as possible and the whole book. I mean, this is a 5,000 gram book of dough So it's quite a bit. It's gonna make about 70 croissants And there's different styles of turning Different Different techniques to get different numbers of layers in your dough So we do two um, two four folds in our dough So this is my first fold. And what I'm doing is I'm um, folding both ends of the dough to meet somewhere around the middle. It doesn't have to be the middle. And then I'm gonna fold it again to create a book. And what that does is now I have more layers of dough and more layers of butter. Um, I wanna say that this particular style, we have about 27 players at the end of the day.
0: Sounds from the kitchen at Gracious Bakery.
7: Why do my heart a beat? What makes the soul come out of me Somebody's really gotta tell me What makes the music sound so sweet
0: what sweet revolution occurred in Louisiana in 1795 stay tuned and we'll answer that question when we come right back
7: feeling but it's
0: I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Louisiana's North Shore is turning up the heat for the annual Tammany Taste of Summer. Plan your escape to St. Tammany Parish for delicious adventures in dining, hotels, and other places to play in Abita Springs, Covington, Folsom, Madisonville, Mandeville, and Slidell. Learn how to get your own Tammany Taste of Summer Pass by visiting TammanyTaste.com. Louisiana's North Shore, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What sweet revolution occurred in Louisiana in 1795? It was the sweet revolution brought about by Etienne de Bore, the first man to granulate sugar. Once the mystery of granulation was solved, the worldwide demand for sugarcane and the granulated sweet stuff began, making Louisiana a very lucrative place to live. DeBore was so revered for his discovery that when Louisiana became part of the United States following the Louisiana Purchase, he was appointed the first mayor of New Orleans. I'm Poppy Tooker, and granulated sugar makes for some good Louisiana Eats.
7: Sugar man, won't you hurry, cause I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams silver magic ships you
0: carry one of my favorite things about louisiana is that no matter where you go you meet amazing people with incredible stories in March 2020, Louisiana Eats traveled to Slidell to meet a true treasure of the North Shore, Miss Emma Giron of Emma's famous pralines. Miss Emma is a food hero who has devoted much of her life to our state's most emblematic candy, the praline.
7: Okay, well, my name is Emma Giron, and I am the owner of this. Praline Company for the last 20 years that I've been right here in this little shop. Located in an unassuming
0: strip mall on Old Spanish Trail, Emma's Famous Pralines is a compact but cozy space filled with the rich aroma of butter and sugar. Family photos and old newspaper clippings adorn the walls. And on the shelves there, you'll find individually wrapped pralines for sale, along with homemade goods, both sweet and savory. I make pickles,
7: okra, pies. What's this yummy thing here? That's a praline butter pound cake. I try to use pralines with everything that I do. Only thing I don't put pralines in is the pickles and the okra.
0: (laughs) If you drop in on a typical weekday morning, you'll find Miss Emma in the kitchen Cooking up batches of her signature confection in a variety of styles. I
7: make the chocolate, Jamaican rum, no liquor because I don't have a liquor's license, the traditional, and coconut. Mm. And you'll recognize it as soon as you taste it. I like pre- I like making them, you know?
0: On the morning we visited Miss Emma, she was working on a batch of Jamaican rum pralines. Can we come in? Can we come in? When we asked her if we could join her in the kitchen, She said yes, but only on the condition that we didn't give away any
7: of her secrets. Nobody, look, I have never had nobody come in here and look at me making them. As the sole operator of the company, Miss
0: Emma is involved in every aspect of praline creation. After balancing a giant, heavy-bottomed pot on her stove, she switched on two burners and added her first set of ingredients, which began simmering. She pointed out that while some candy makers use industrial grade equipment for heat conduction, her setup is less elaborate.
7: I don't have no kettle like the big time Praline people. I got pots and I got two hands, y'all.
0: While it may be a simpler process than the ones her competitors employ, it's by no means easier. Stirring that heated mixture by hand requires some vigilance at the stove. Miss Emma explained that sometimes all it takes is for one customer
7: to come in and... It'll burn up. Oh, I done burned some up, y'all. People come in and, you know, I be trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I'ma stay there and make sure that those people are satisfied. And then when I come back here, it be done. Burn. Yeah. Because I ain't got nobody that I can say, well, go stir it a pot, you know.
0: It's just you. Yeah,
7: but I'm all right, babe.
0: As a one-woman operation, Miss Emma makes up to 200 pralines a day for a devoted customer base that's grown exponentially over the
7: past 20 years, thanks mostly to word of mouth. It's very expensive to do advertising, and I didn't have that money, so... I just made it and just every now and then somebody would stop in here. Say, I didn't know you was here. And, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And they'd buy the preline and then they'd go tell other people and that would bring them here. See that, ma'am? Uh-huh. Oh, it should be boiling now. Oh, me. it's boiling oh, and yeah. it has changed color. Gee, babe. Now I gotta get some little spices and stuff over here.
0: Although Miss Emma has been making her pralines for 20 years it's what you might consider a second career and it almost didn't even happen long before she got into the candy making business Miss Emma lived and worked in Saint Bernard Parish there she raised two sons with her late husband Jose
7: his name was Jose Santos Hirón he was from the Honduras and we married we was married 32 years And my husband and I, you know, we got together a little house in Violet. For decades,
0: Miss Emma worked just down the road in Araby at a nursing home. As its activities director, she organized events for residents like crafts, bingo,
7: and sing-alongs. I worked at the Maison Orleans, and my job there was to make them not want to die. Oh, baby, it worked. I had so many volunteers because people, moms and dads passed away, you know, in the course of my being there, and they couldn't leave. The the daughters and the sons, they all just kept coming, and they all turned into volunteers. Meanwhile, her husband made his living as a seaman working offshore, a job that took him far away from home. He was a captain on those supply boats for the Earl Rigs. And he said to me one day, you know, maybe you need to do something else. He said, because I don't feel very good. And I said, oh, you got, you're going to be fine. But as time passed, Jose only became more adamant about it. He said, you got to do something because I really don't feel good. So um, I had the opportunity, you know, I could have sang or done something else. After 32
0: years working at the nursing home, Miss Emma considered her options. One path forward involved embracing her innate talent as a singer. She loved singing for the residents of Maison Orleans and at her church, and she'd even recorded a CD that showcased her voice.
7: My mouth is filled with I went to several places, you know, with the singing, the Roosevelt Hotel and uh, at the Lakefront Arena, the Civic Auditorium of St. Bernard, I went to several places.
0: She also sang at a venue most singers can only dream about, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. Miss Emma had a brush with fame when she performed for a crowd of several thousand there in 1999. The story begins at Avondale Shipyard, located about 20 miles upriver from New Orleans. Miss Emma was asked to sing there as part of a convention
7: for the Sheet Metal Workers Association. And they needed somebody to sing Amazing Grace. I said, no, I'm not going, you know. So my sister said, come and we'll go with you. So I said, okay. Ooh, y'all, it was a big outside thing, you know. And they had a stage Oh, Lord, they put me up on this stage. I said, oh, my word. The only place, you know, I had ever gone and was really comfortable was at church. Uh So I just went and sang Amazing Grace for him. The General Secretary
0: Treasurer of the Sheet Metal Workers National Association was in the audience that day. He was so moved by the purity and strength of Miss Emma's voice that he booked her as featured performer for the Association's International
7: Convention in Sin City They rented the second floor Of the Caesars Palace I had to sing before About six or 7,000 people I was so scared I didn't know what to do But we made it through The whole thing And everybody treated me so nice They were wonderful to me who knows where i was going to go after you know and if the experience was going to be as pleasing as it was in nevada
0: so when her husband asked her what she wanted to do next for a living miss emma made the decision to focus her energy on pralines something she and her sister-in-law
7: had just started to experiment with my sister-in-law and i played with them about say i've been here 20 years so we started making them about five years prior mm-hmm. to that, and we, uh, we'd sell them $3 a batch to the nursing home people. And oh my God, they loved it. When y'all gonna make? So after he started talking about me doing a singing or this, I chose this, and then I just got it to perfection. Now this is Jamaican rum. And it's the best seller.
0: How do you know when they're done? You just know. Giving the pot a final stir, Miss Emma began the process of dropping spoonfuls of pralines onto two baking sheets. The past 20 years weren't always easy for Miss Emma. Shortly after opening the praline shop, her husband Jose passed away from a stroke at the age of 62. There were setbacks, hurricanes, and even a broken hip.
7: I done been in some stuff, but That's I'm still here.
0: While a strip mall in Slidell is not the Las Vegas Strip, it's all the glamor that Miss Emma has needed. As she marks two decades of making pralines on Old Spanish Trail, she's embraced her reputation as a local favorite and community
7: treasure. And y'all, I've been, people been coming from all over the world here. And I said, how would you know I was here? They said, we Googled it, and you were the only one that showed up on a Google. And, Papi, I don't know how to do it. I'm 71 years old. I don't know how to do uh, the Googling and all that kind of stuff. So They said, and you came up with five stars.
0: Well, thank God for Google, huh? Whatever that is, I said to myself,
7: now, Lord, how am I going to see the five stars? But anyway, y'all. I've been making these brilliance, and I love this job. I wouldn't give it up. You say, well, when are you going to retire? I say, when death comes. That's when I'm, I have no no thoughts of retiring. For what? You know? I give you my all. I give you everything.
0: That was Miss Emma Geron of Emma's Famous pralines. You can find her at her shop at 705 Spanish Trail in Slidell. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. It's official. The last Sunday of every month, we're hosting a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Two Restaurant with three courses, five drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. Check your calendar. The last Sunday of October is Halloween. So make your reservations now for what's guaranteed to be the most haunting experience of your year. Call 2 Jacks for reservations, 504-525-8626. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe to Louisiana Eats for extra content, including exclusive podcasts and more. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders Dry Ingredient Blends With New Orleans Roots To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com Original theme music Composed by David Pomerlow And performed by Johnny Sketch And the Dirty Notes Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner And producer and special Projects manager Reggie Morris And to our business manager And social media maven Maddie Mullidoux Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.